If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for July 15th, 2021. I'm Glenn Fleischman, in for Jackson Bird, who is on vacation. It's not mind reading, but a man's ability to convey words is partially restored through electrodes and machine learning. NASA carefully prepares to press Control-Alt-Delete on the Hubble Space Telescope. Look to the skies, the Perseids are coming. Inexplicable black ice worms emerge by the billions from glaciers, and happy 22nd birthday, Metafilter. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There's a category of news story I call my happy ugly cry of the day story. These are articles that hit me deep in the heart and make me have more hope for humanity. The tears just start to flow. Yesterday, that was an account of a man who asked the New York Times to call him just by his nickname, Poncho. A combination of implanted electrodes and machine learning allowed a partial recovery of his ability to communicate with words by associating an array of motor actions with the words he intended to produce. These words would then appear as computer output. The device, a speech neuroprosthesis, doesn't read his mind, but rather, through 128 electrodes strategically implanted, the combination of electrical impulses required to vocalize the word. One of the researchers explained, quote, he is thinking the word. It's not random thoughts that the computer is picking up, end quote. It's probably worth noting in all caps, no researchers have ever even come close to this before, and the accuracy was high enough to excite other scientists. The New York Times quotes Melanie Fried Oaken, a professor of neurology and pediatrics at Oregon Health and Science University, who had no involvement in this effort. Quote, this is farther than we've ever imagined we could go, end quote. Pancho was a California vineyard field worker who was in a car crash after a soccer game when he was 20. He suffered serious damage to his stomach and was operated on. After being discharged, he seemed to be recovering, but the day after his release from the hospital, he experienced a brainstem stroke that his doctors believe resulted from a post-surgery blood clot. That stroke led to his near inability to control his limbs and body. However, he can control a wheelchair allowing him some mobility, and he has just enough movement control to type using a head-controlled mouse. Here's your new word of the day. It was new to me. Anarthia, the loss of ability to articulate speech. As the accompanying scientific paper notes, quote, patients with anarthia may have intact language skills and cognition, and some are able to produce limited oral movements and undifferentiated vocalizations when attempting to speak. However, paralyzed persons may be unable to operate assistive devices because of severe impairment of movement. Anarthia hinders communication with family, friends, and caregivers, thereby reducing patient-reported quality of life, end quote. 
This research most immediately could affect a relatively small number of people. One scientist quoted who was not associated with the project said it could help tens of thousands of those who lack the ability to talk, but whose brains contain neural pathways for speech. Dr. Lee Hochberg, a neurologist with Massachusetts General Hospital, Brown University, and the Department of Veterans Affairs, told the New York Times, quote, It's now only a matter of years before there will be a clinically useful system that will allow for the restoration of communication, end quote. This study involved a single patient, but because he has other pathways to communicate, the results couldn't be clearer, and they picked the right person to start with. It's patronizing to refer to people with disabilities as inspiring, and I will avoid that trap with Poncho, but you should be goddamned impressed by him regardless of how he controls his body. The New York Times, whose reporter interviewed Poncho via email over weeks, notes, quote, before his stroke, Pancho had attended school only up to the sixth grade in his native Mexico. With remarkable determination, he has since earned a high school diploma, taken college classes, received a web developer certificate, and begun studying French. End quote. This is a hell of a guy. Again, from the New York Times, Pancho's buoyant personality has helped the researchers navigate challenges, but also occasionally make speech recognition uneven. Quote, I sometimes can't control my emotions and laugh a lot and don't do too good with the experiment, end quote. Because being part of a revolutionary study in electronic mind reading wasn't enough, Pancho is also engaged with researchers on brain control of a robotic arm. Here's a little more technical detail about the work. The project is called, hold on, BCI Restoration of Arm and Voice, Bravo study, where BCI stands for Brain Computer Interface. In the paper, Poncho is pseudonymously referred to as Bravo One. The New York Times story was timed to appear with a research paper titled, more technically, Neuroprosthesis for Decoding Speech in a Paralyzed Person with Anarthia in the New England Journal of Medicine. Both are linked in the show notes. Poncho can type with his head at about five words a minute. Vocalized speech is closer to 150 words per minute. His brain interface so far allows word production at about 15 words per minute. It's worth noting that because of the implantation, Poncho couldn't work with the interface on his own. Instead, researchers visited him or brought him to a medical center over 50 sessions that covered 81 weeks with delays due to the pandemic. They collected about 22 hours of data. That's what makes it so amazing. That is not a lot of data. They worked with just a 50-word set and accurately interpreted the number of words intended 92% of the time. The accuracy rate wasn't terrible for groundbreaking work, only about 40%, which is vastly higher than chance, which would have been 2%. However, they added in a natural language model based on sentences containing those 50 words and could correct for errors in interpretation to produce desired sentences about three-quarters of the time. Now for the part of the story that doesn't make me well up with tears. Bravo was an outgrowth of interest by Facebook, yes, Facebook, in being able to scan people's brains non-invasively. Facebook also published a blog post yesterday that described the excitement of the company over the clinical success in its role in it. Facebook called its effort Project Steno. Quote, Facebook provided high-level feedback, machine learning advice, and funding throughout Project Steno, but the University of California at San Francisco designed and oversaw the study and worked directly with the participant. Facebook was not involved in data collection with the research participant in any way. All the data remains on-site at UCSF and under the control of UCSF at all times. To be clear, Facebook has no interest in developing products that require implanted electrodes, end quote. 
Okay, good to clarify that. Facebook basically wants an AR VR helmet you can wear and type by thinking. MIT Technology Review noted, quote, quote, while the UCSF research was going on, Facebook was also paying other centers like the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins to figure out how to pump light through the skull to read neurons non-invasively. Much like MRI, those techniques rely on sensing reflected light to measure the amount of blood flow to brain regions, end quote. But the company's blog post says that they are effectively exiting that research in favor of wrist-based electromyography related to a company it bought for $500 million in 2019 called Control Labs, that's C-T-R-L, all in caps. Quote, when you decide to move your hands and fingers, your brain sends signals down your arm via motor neurons, telling them to move in specific ways in order to perform actions like tapping or swiping. EMG can pick up and decode those signals, the hand and finger movements you've already decided to make, at the wrist and translate them into digital commands for your device, end quote. EMG makes more sense near-term for AR-VR interaction, but it also has some great implications to assist people who cannot fully articulate hands and fingers. So, just once, I'll say, yay Facebook! Let's conclude on an incredible thought from one of the researchers, Dr. Edward Chang, chairman of neurological surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Quote, in the future, we might be able to do what people are thinking, which raises some really important questions about the ethics of this kind of technology. But this, he said, is really just about restoring the individual's voice. The 31-year-old Hubble Space Telescope will shortly be given a nice reboot after a seeming power supply failure in the payload computer that manages Hubble's scientific instruments and that's left it unable to perform its science mission since June 13th. Because it's in space, NASA can't easily jiggle the power switch. I mean, it can jiggle a power switch, but it requires a careful sequence of actions to avoid shutting the telescope down forever, even with all the fail-safes involved. After days of trying to restart computers and switch to a computer backup, NASA says that it's clear the power control unit, PCU, is at fault. Everything at NASA has an abbreviation. NASA plans to switch over to a redundant power system today, it's another PCU, which, if successful, will lead to several days of powering instruments back up. NASA made this announcement yesterday, ending weeks of speculation about what was wrong with the telescope and its future. The critical device is called the Science Instrument Command and Data Handling Unit, which is abbreviated to something that takes nearly as long to say aloud, S-I-C and D-H. I mean, come on. Spacecraft intended for orbit or landing on another body are designed for resiliency, but also with the assumption that something certainly will fail. That requires redundancy, often supplied by having at least two identical systems that can be switched between, controlled by an even more resilient, typically simpler system that can keep a craft from failure even if primary computer systems can't work. That simpler system is also usually redundant. Cosmic rays, micrometeoroids, and the wear and tear of operating in absurdly cold conditions, or varying hot and cold ones depending on sun or planetary exposure, all take their toll. To make matters more complicated, the Hubble did actually get a house call from astronauts in 2009 on one of the last space shuttle missions who replaced the SICNDH. See, it takes almost as long to say. So this isn't even an old part that failed, apparently, but a new one. These kinds of failures are absolutely commonplace, as is jury-rigging solutions Apollo 13 style from components and systems on board that can be remotely controlled. 
I wrote in an article about this topic for The Economist in 2013 how Voyager 2's flyby of Uranus almost resulted in blurry photos. Quote, As it completed its pass of Saturn, the gears that controlled the azimuth of its camera platform got stuck. The JPL controllers cope with this by reprogramming Voyager 2 to rotate by 90 degrees and use its elevation motor to pan the camera instead. They also reprogrammed the probe's attitude control system with a motion compensation algorithm to slew the craft as it passed Uranus and its moons, enabling it to produce much crisper images." A substantially more advanced space telescope has been in the works from nearly the day the Hubble launched in 1989. The history is long and rocky. It's now called the James Webb Space Telescope and is a co-venture between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. The James Webb, named for NASA's second administrator, was planned in 1997 to launch in 2007. It did not. More recently, the pandemic delayed launches and work, slated most recently for an October 31st launch this year, in June that slipped to mid-November due to an issue with the launch rocket. As I record this episode, no news yet from NASA. Godspeed, Hubble. You don't need a fancy space telescope to watch an amazing show in the night sky. The Perseids are back. This meteor shower is one of each year's best, and little blossoms will show up in the sky for several weeks to come, peaking between August 11th and 13th. Around 150 meters an hour should be visible during that peak time. Earth flies through the orbital path of the comet Swift-Tuttle every year, producing the flashes in the night sky. The comet completes a circuit every 133 years, but it leaves a lot of remains that we traverse. These are large enough, and in a large enough quantity, that it can be easy to spot debris that enters the Earth's atmosphere. Okay, so, the difference between a meteor, a meteoride, with a D, and a meteorite, with a T. A meteor is any object that enters the Earth's atmosphere from space. A meteoride with a D-like dog is the source of a meteor and maybe dust from the formation of the solar system, a fragment of an asteroid, or from particles left behind by comets. A meteorite with a T-like Tom is a meteor that falls to the Earth's surface. The best time to view the Perseids in the United States is about 2 a.m. on a moonless night, though you can see fewer ones and more dimly starting after 9 p.m. or after dusk if your local sunset is quite late. I would refer you to an interactive guide NASA offers for finding more exact information for viewing, except that it's a Java applet. A Java applet. Instead, I'd turn to SkyGuide, an app made by some people I know for iPhone or iPad that is a great guide to the night sky in general and will help you find all sorts of celestial objects. Billions upon billions of tiny black worms emerge from glaciers each summer. Why so many? What's the reproductive cycle? What do they eat? Nobody knows! As NPR reports from Mount Rainier, an active volcano only slightly distant in the horizon for me on a clear day in Seattle, quote, These thread-like worms, each only about an inch long, wiggle up en masse in the summertime late in the afternoon to do what? Scientists don't know. It's just one of many mysteries about these worms, which have barely been studied, even though they're the most abundant critter living up there in the snow and ice, end quote. Estimates indicate there might be 5 billion worms per glacier. Despite the quantity, these worms are overlooked. This frustrates a researcher who investigates these worms. NPR notes, the National Park Service's Visitors Center near Paradise Glacier, for example, has a nice display on alpine wildlife, he says. 
quote, and there is somehow nothing about ice worms, and it is a source of frustration for me, end quote. This may be because the worms only appear in certain places during limited times of the day and year. They survive at conditions down to freezing, but not below it, so they'll die below 0 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. They may eat algae, but a researcher has kept some in his refrigerator for years without feeding them, and he says, quote, they're fine. But he's not sure if they've reproduced or they're the original worms. Birds love them, that's for sure. Finally, Metafilter just turned 22 years old. The eclectic discussion community is one of the only proofs that you can sustain conversation on the internet without it always devolving irrevocably into dissension and Nazis, either calling everyone Nazis or Nazis taking over. It's a nice bit of old-fashioned internet that doesn't live and die on drama. You can find wonderful threads about people's families. Folks post questions about mysteries and have them answered. It's where I go when I need to recharge internet batteries. Happy birthday, you grand old site. And that is it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Glenn Fleischman, in for Jackson Bird. You can tweet me your thoughts at Glenn F on Twitter. That's G-L-E-N-N-F like Frank. I'll be back tomorrow and all of next week. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.